some of you who are new to retreat, this will just show up like this is how it is. But for some of you who have been retreating quite a bit of times, I don't know if I've ever been on a retreat where a talk was in the morning. So just noticing how our conditioning, even in righteous activity, gets stamped in, right? The other piece is, since we're here for just a few days with each other, um, wanted to design or create a way to have you all have a nice balance of the various aspects of practice, because a talk, that's the Dhamma, that's one of the components of practice. And so for uh, this retreat, we're having uh, more frequent opportunities for Dhamma to be uh, offered and put out there. Uh, and when I thought about, well, what, what might be um, useful? What might be a contribution? What might be an offering from the offerers? I thought that perhaps the Brahma Viharas would be a nice place to land for the days that we're here together. We do a lot of uh, uh, mind work on cultivating uh, the wisdom aspect of the practice, but oftentimes, unless you're doing a Brahma Vihara practice, it's kind of offered for a half hour late in the afternoon and isn't really integrated uh, into the retreat or into the practice as a valid and valuable practice opportunity, which can lead to freedom. Also, can be engaged with as a concentration practice. So between the four of us, uh, you're gonna have the opportunity to hear about the four Brahma Viharas over the next two days. So the other thing that I'll say, just in terms of a structural piece, I'm still trying to kind of work this out for myself, but when I'm reading quotes and when I'm reading um, poetry or things that other people have written, <coughs> for the most part, but sometimes I do, change pronouns. So I haven't worked out yet my uh, engagement with the integrity of the piece and what the person said, actually, because it's the quotes, what they said. So sometimes you'll hear that I've switched them and sometimes not, but I just wanted to acknowledge that, that that is prevalent on my mind uh, in relationship to doing no harm. So I'll begin with a, a, a reading from uh, Zenju Earthland Manuel's book, The Way of Tenderness, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender. And the reason I chose this is because I said, well, for a POC retreat, this is very, very cogent, very, very applicable, very, very um, relevant in relationship to both um, all of us having whatever our own stuff is around becoming, but also the prevalence of the external impact that 
until we find some proficiency and efficacy with the practice, there are at times huge pieces of suffering that are experienced and worked with just as a result of walking in the bodies that we walk in, interfacing with the external. And it may not even be something um, that's direct on you. I don't even have to go back to the 60s when I was a child, but when I was a, a young person in the 60s, you know, uh, it's just after the burgeoning of the age of television and the whole civil rights movement was reported on TV, just like the Vietnam War was. And growing up with those images of the fire hoses and the dogs and the war conditioned certain views and ways of understanding and knowing and seeing that I have. So it's unfortunate that I can say there are some same things going on today, even more so because of the onslaught of technology. You don't even have to, you know, you could turn the TV off, but nowadays, just even when you open your phone, it's there. So I thought it would be really relevant to kind of um, have Earthland start us off, and it's her posit that um, um, for those of us in bodies that are outside of the normative uh, culture, the awakening is actually through the acceptance and, and um, cultivation of well-being of the body. I've realized that the suffering I felt was part of a much broader suffering in the world. It was not mine, but the suffering that existed even before my birth. I recognized that I felt separate from the rest of the world, that I did not belong, and that I was not an acceptable part of the dominant culture because I was so different from the majority in terms of my appearance. The world had structured itself around appearance. The way in which I was perceived and treated depended on a structure of race, sexuality, gender, and then I added immigration and religion and class. The perverse power of these structures made my embodiment unacceptable to others and myself. As a result, I was paralyzed by feelings of isolation. I had come not to trust my own innate wisdom. By internalizing the judgments of those who felt that certain types of folks are lesser, I had betrayed myself. I had yielded to oppression. Oppression is a distortion of our true nature. It disconnects us from the earth and from each other. Awakening from the distortion of oppression begins with tenderness. We recognize our own wounded tenderness, which develops into the tenderness of vulnerability and culminates in the tenderness that comes with heartfelt and authentic liberation. What is this suffering often felt by people of color? There is no one answer. But I suspect that we had been taught to love everyone and then have felt betrayed and angered when that love was not returned. We have been deeply wounded by this betrayal and have searched out ways to recover 
the loving people that we know ourselves to be. We have created names for ourselves, such as people of color, in order to label the pain. We have created sanctuaries to heal and still have yet to emerge from those sanctuaries for fear of being hurt once again. What happens to hurt people? We forget that we are butterflies bearing up in the wild winds. We forget that we are tender from the suffering. Unworthiness, invisibility, loss of intimacy, isolation, neglected intuition, lack of love, intense fear, overwhelming distrust comes and the loss of voice. All life-threatening symptoms of the disease of systemic oppression. The inability to see the true nature of beauty in ourselves as ourselves causes injury, assault, and war for all sentient creatures. It is within friendship or relationship or connection that a liberated and complete tenderness is experienced. So I'm going to speak to equanimity. And oftentimes when the Brahma Viharas are taught, it's taught first loving kindness or metta, which many of you have heard of and perhaps even practiced. But I've always felt in my body, it's always seemed to me that the place to begin is from a place of balance. You know, it would relieve or eradicate or soften some of the struggle that it takes to move through metta, to move through compassion, to even entertain sympathetic joy. So I kind of view equanimity as the soil, the groundwork for which all the other Brahma Viharas can find their expression and their location in our minds and heart. So equanimity, the beneficial feeling, state, or condition that we hope to cultivate through our mindfulness practice. When we rest in equanimity, our feelings are in perfect balance. We neither push away unpleasant feelings nor grasp at pleasant ones. We are not confused by ignorance and see everything very clearly. Since we are not identifying with ourself, with our feelings, they pass quietly and quickly away, leaving us at peace. As a feeling, equanimity is both neutral and spiritual. It is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and it is not indifferent, which oftentimes there's an interpretation. I actually find that equanimity is one of the most powerful positions to sit in. We are awake and alert and continue our observation of our body, feelings, thoughts, and other experiences without being pushed and pulled by desire or aversion. It's like when those two or three drops of water 
fall on an iron skillet that's been heating for quite some time, the falling of the drops might be slow, but then quickly they evaporate and disappear once hitting the skillet. That is the work that we're up to in terms of our minds and hearts, such that when suffering, such that when uh, disengagement, such that when feeling disempowered hits that skillet of a clear mind, it doesn't stick. It's there and then it's gone. With equanimity, we are no longer troubled by the ups and downs of pleasure and pain. Mind and body are in balance. We are free of restlessness, agitation, and worry. Confusion has ended, and we rest in harmony with reality. Even the subtle desire for a beautiful experience to continue has disappeared. So sometimes in our efforts to um, avoid uh, uh, or to be engaged with aversion, that's the easy one. That's the easy one. It's easy to see oftentimes when we're trying everything we know how to do to not feel something unpleasant, to not engage with something that's aversive to our nervous systems. But when it feels good, we can get trapped in that cycle because since everything is impermanent, eventually that feel good is going to be gone. Right? And we're still subjected to the push and pull. The Buddha, it is said, said that to develop a mind that is vast like the water, where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm, rest in a mind like vast water. William James, a philosopher, says the transition from tenseness, self-responsibility, and worry to equanimity, receptivity, and peace is the most wonderful of all these shiftings of inner equilibrium, these changes of personal center of energy, which I have analyzed so often, and the chief wonder of it is that it so often comes about not by doing but by simply relaxing and throwing the burden down. Equanimity is one of the most sublime emotions within our Buddhist practice. Amit Ray says equanimity is the hallmark of spirituality. It is neither chasing nor avoiding but just being in the middle. It is the ground for wisdom and freedom and the protector of compassion and love. Some may think of equanimity as dry neutrality or cool aloofness, but mature equanimity produces a radiance and warmth of being. <clears throat> so back in, I think he wrote this piece in the 60s, it may have been in the late 50s, James Baldwin, who was an artist, a poet, an activist, an African-American man who was gay, who, toler who could not tolerate um, 
the conditions in the United States as it related to his capacity and ability to authenticate himself within the so society. And so he moved to Europe. He moved to France um, and lived a lot of his life there. But then as he observed what was happening in this country, it came to a point where he could no longer remain uninvolved. And he moved back to the United States and was one of our biggest heroes in terms of uh, his observances and what he has to say. So this is a piece that he wrote uh, back in the late 50s. Life is tragic simply because the earth turns and the sun inexorably rises and sets. And one day for each of us, the sun will go down for the last, last time. Perhaps the whole root of our trouble, the human trouble, is that we will sacrifice all the beauty of our lives, will imprison ourselves in totems, taboos, crosses, blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, nations, in order to deny the fact of death which is the only fact we have. It seems to me that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death, ought to decide, indeed, to earn one's death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. One is responsible to life. It is the small beacon in that terrifying mystery from which we come and to which we shall return. One must negotiate this passage as nobly as possible for the sake of those who are coming after us. But white Americans do not believe in death, and this is why the darkness of my skin so intimidates them. And this is also why the presence of the Negro in this country can bring about its destruction. It is the responsibility of free people to trust and to celebrate what is constant. Birth, struggle, and death are constant. And so is love, though we may not always think so. And to apprehend the nature of change, to be willing to change. I speak of change not on the surface, but in the depths change in the sense of renewal. But renewal becomes impossible if one supposes things to be constant that are not. Safety, for example, or money, or power. One clings then to chimeris, and chimeris is a thing that is hoped for but in fact is illusory or impossible to achieve. One then clings to chimeris by which one can only be betrayed and the entire hope, the entire possibility of freedom disappears. So kind of how I look at that uh, for myself is I really don't, maybe because of what I assume is the history of my people, given that I'm an African-American person, 
and I look like this, so I assume Africa's in the blood, you know? And I know my family is from South Carolina, so I assume there was somebody or some bodies who were engaged in that experience of enslavement. And, uh, you know, that really, really, I ride on that in terms of my ancestors and in terms of myself, I'm not interested in being enslaved by anything internally or externally. And for me, the Brahma Viharas are the way to hold myself such that I can uh, guard against that. So, the four heavenly abodes or sublime states of mind. These four attitudes are said to be excellent or sublime because they are the right or the wise or the ideal way of conduct towards living beings, including ourselves. They provide a context to all situations arising from social contact. They are the great removers of tension, the great peacemakers in social conflict, and the great healers of wounds suffered in the struggle of existence. They level social barriers, build harmonious communities, awaken slumbering magnanimity long forgotten, revive joy and hope long abandoned, and promote human brotherhood against the forces of egotism. The Brahma Viharas are incompatible with a hating state of mind. They are called abodes because through practice, they become the mind's constant dwelling places where we feel at home. And hopefully, they will not remain merely places of rare and short visits, soon forgotten. In other words, our minds should become thoroughly saturated by them. They can become our inseparable companions and we can be mindful of them in all our common activities. As is written in the Metta Sutta, the Song of Loving Kindness, when standing, walking, sitting, lying down, whenever he feels free of tiredness, let them establish well this mindfulness. This, it is said, is the divine abode. So the loving kindness or metta in Pali, compassion or karuna in Pali, sympathetic joy or mudita in Pali, and equanimity or upekka in Pali. They should be non-exclusive and impartial, not bound by selective preferences or prejudices. A mind that has attained the boundlessness as the Brahma Viharas will not harbor any national, racial, religious, gender, or class violence and hatred. Until we are practiced to the degree where we are abiding in the heart naturally with that mental attitude, it will not be easy for us to affect that boundless application by a deliberate effort of will and to avoid consistently any kind or degree of partiality. 
to achieve that in most cases. So here's the other thing. I use words like must, have, should. They are not directives, but I grew up in the black church. And when we want to punctuate something, when we want to suggest like y'all check it out, really, those are the kinds of words. So I wanted to put that qualifier in there because I'm not demanding that anybody in here does anything, but it just helps with the communication for me. Until we are practiced to the degree where we are abiding in the heart naturally with that mental attitude, it will not be easy for us to affect that boundless application by a deliberate effort of will and to avoid consistently any kind of degree of partiality. To achieve that, in most cases, we shall have to use these four qualities, not only as principles of conduct and objects of reflection, but also as subjects of methodical meditation. This meditation is called Brahmavihara Bhavana, the meditative development of the sublime states. The practical aim is to achieve with the help of these sublime states, those stages of mental concentration or meditative absorption. This meditative absorption that happens naturally at some point over time in response to intention, practice, and cultivation. So I know that for some of you, you're starting to experience um, in the body some of the arisings of the the stories, the conditioning, the beliefs, the um, anxiety, the depression, the, the joy, the happiness. You're starting to experience that arising in the body. So as we move through today and tomorrow and the next morning to remember to bring kindness to yourself, right? Remember to remember that this is part of the process. You can't go around it. You have to go through it. The ultimate aim of attaining these Brahma-Vihara concentrated states is to produce a state of mind that can serve as a firm basis for the liberating insight into the true nature of all phenomena as being impermanent or always changing, liable to suffering, and unsubstantial. A mind that has achieved meditative absorption induced by the sublime states will be pure, tranquil, firm, collected, and free of selfishness. Our everyday life and thought has a strong influence on the meditative mind. It's only if the gap between them is persistently and consistently narrowed that there will be a chance for steady, meditative deepening and growth leading us towards freedom. So one of the things that I hold, you know, I, none of this is proven. It just comes from being in a black body and working with folks who walk in bodies of color um, or racialized bodies that the actuality is that experience of living um, in the West, living in the United States, living in Canada, because, you know, really it's underground in Canada. Like, no, it's, it's here. It's here. 
Otherwise, 40 of y'all wouldn't be here, you know? Um, but there's something about living in these bodies that actually give rise to us having very flexible and fluid minds because we operate in realities, so many different realities at one time. And we have the understanding uh, <laughs> that not being privileged means we have to attend to and understand different realities and level. That gives us a mind that when it gets attached to this way of knowing and understanding allows us to fly, allows us to move ever ongoingly towards freedom. And part of the work for us, in addition to engaging the practice of the Dhamma, the practice of meditation, part of what is um, essential uh, for us moving towards freedom is the commitment and intention for decolonizing our minds. Otherwise, the understanding even of the Dhamma comes through colonized mind. And that won't get us where we're wanting to go. That's one of the things that actually um, is so useful and so relevant and so um, accessible for me in this practice because so much of it is trying it on and working with it for yourself and not taking anybody's word for anything. Seeing how it rolls out in your body, seeing how it rolls out in your nervous system, seeing how it rolls out in your heart. One of the best ways to have this tool when we're walking in these bodies. Tanisaro Bhikkhu says that meditative development of the sublime states will be aided by repeated reflection upon their qualities, the benefits they bestow, and the dangers from their opposites. As the Buddha said, what a person considers and reflects upon for a long time, to that his mind will bend and incline. And on our backs, it's been a long time. As Ursuline began in the quote that I read at the beginning, it's not just what we're carrying. It's not just in this lifetime, right? It extends back, maybe even to the places of origin, the land of origin of our ancestry. Right? So we're having to move through all of that, gain clarity and understanding of all of that and how that is impacting now. And some, I think, um, contribution to why in one of the domains it's so challenging for many of us to really engage with this uh, uh, Dhamma understanding of not-self. Because when one has been invisible, when one has not been allowed to be entertaining the understanding of not self actually feels like a death, right? And so as we move through this um, couple of days together and as you continue with your practice, coming to understand that this not self or this anatta is really a place again of empowerment. Because if we're not that, then we have the capacity to bring ourselves 
into existence in relationship to whatever is meeting us externally or internally in a well way, in a way where we're positioned to make choices and decisions about what are the best actions to take here, or maybe the best decision is not to take any action. You know, what seems like a long time ago, but I guess it was only three and a half years ago when the elections in the United States happened, which happens, maybe a few of you have heard me say this, which happened to coincide with the uh, arising of assault on knowingly black male bodies, but I'm sure it was happening to black female bodies too. And definitely we know it happens to black trans bodies. That's even happening now. But there was the, uh, this, this comorbid arising of the election and the 360 uh, change in the politics and policies of the United States along with that where I said to myself, I really don't know how I will make it through the next four years without causing harm to myself by sitting with anger 24-7. Like I had at least the wisdom, which came from the practice, I'm sure, to understand that there was some action I was going to need to take to take care of myself and to be able to interface with whatever was needing to be interfaced with out there. And it was at that time that I decided to pick up the practice of equanimity. And I took it on as my primary practice for about six, six to eight months. And it totally rearranged my nervous system. You know, even now, people, people back home at the United States, I don't know what you all are saying over here in Canada, you're probably talking about us bad. But back home in the United States, um, every time somebody says, you know, they come to me like, look, wait, look. Why are you expecting anything different? It's not about what's happening out there. It's about how do you, like, it's a, it's, a, um, it's a social justice issue to take care of yourself, right? So that you're equipped to manage and be with whatever is coming your way, because it's not over yet. You know, the people may change in November or wherever it is, and I know what Trudeau is saying about here, but it's not over yet. And not only is it not over yet, it's because it's all over the world that this is happening. So part of our job, part of what um, this practice affords us is the opportunity to be well in the chaos, right? So that we can make clear decisions about what's useful. I think I'll suffice it to say that um, somebody made a decision to stay, to be here as best they could, which is what affords us to be here today. So I don't know how many generations back, may even be the ancestor, but somebody chose 
somebody made a decision to survive. And it's out of that decision that was made that we're able to sit here today. So when we ride on that understanding, there's really nothing to suffer around. Right? There's really nothing to take us off the hopes and dreams of our ancestors who made the choice so that those who were coming, who we were at one time, could live lives full of freedom and joy. And now it's our job to take this on so that the generations that are coming can take it even to the next level. So I'm going to end with a poem by Maya Angelou. A brave and startling truth. We, this people on a small and lonely planet, traveling through casual space, past aloof stars, across the way of indifferent suns, to a destination where all signs tell us it is possible and imperative that we learn a brave and startling truth. And when we come to it, to the day of peacemaking, when we release our fingers from fists of hostility and allow the pure air to cool our palms, we, this people on this small and drifting planet whose hands can strike with abandon, that in a twinkling life is sapped from the living Yet, those same hands can touch with such healing, irresistible tenderness that the haughty neck is happy to bow and the proud back is glad to bend. Out of such chaos, of such contradiction, we learn that we are neither devils nor divine. When we come to it, we, this people on this wayward floating body, created on this earth, of this earth, have the power to fashion for this earth a climate where every man and every woman can live freely without sanctimonious piety, without crippling fear. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is when, and only when, we come to it. Thank you for your listening. Let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.